Yes, I pray now, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable, Lord God, in your sight. Jesus, you are my rock and my redeemer. And thank you that we here can confess that faith together. And we pray that it will go stronger within us in these days of challenge. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. I was just interested in that scripture that um, Alan was reading there, which finished with the verse, if it's time for, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, I, I always remember listening to Bob Gordon on one occasion, who really was my, my sort of a mentor at that time. Um, but he, he was preaching to us, we were out on mission one Sunday in had an unfamiliar congregation and he made the point, he said how do you define a Christian? and nobody came up with any quick definition and he said a Christian is one who knows the judgment of God on his life and I found that an interesting definition, I've never heard anyone quite define it like that before But it marries in well with what Peter is saying here. If it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, that's not usually preached, is it? You know, you pray a sinner's prayer. Once saved, always saved, so, so we're told by some people. Peter's quoting a proverb here which says, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, I mean, is it hard? Do you find being saved hard? Depends very often on what side you get up out of bed on. It does, you know. There's a sense in which it's easy. Come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But there's a sense, if, if we're not yoked in with Jesus, if we try always to pull against the yoke, and our wills are not properly surrendered to him, it can be very, very hard trying to work out our own salvation. Because it, 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 it's not going to be effective. If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, and it, 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 that's within us, that's the challenge that we all face day by day of living in a way that's surrendered to the Spirit of God. We face that challenge every day, don't we? And you know, I'm not comfortable with once saved, always saved. For me, I was saved at one point. I am saved today, but I need to go on being saved until I stop living. You know, salvation is a process. Don't you think? Rather than a one-off event, just pray a prayer and once saved, always saved. Come on, there's more to it than that. If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter doesn't paint an easy picture, does he? So then, those who suffer according to God's will, we're told... Suffering is 
a gift that we're given to work through in our lives. I mean, that's contrary to anything we would think in the natural. Isn't it? And when I come to faith, I've got to more or less overturn everything the world has put into me and start learning again, haven't I? With the Word of God and the people of God being my teachers and the Spirit of God giving life to the Word. And this is the challenge. This is why it can be difficult. It is difficult. Because I've still got all the old stuff bouncing about inside me. I've got to replace that with the new stuff that Jesus teaches me. And I, I would always find it easy. I don't know about you. Have you? Do you find it easy being a believer? Anybody here find it easy? Hands up, anybody find it easy? They don't. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and to continue to do good. Fantastic. So our passage this morning... Luke 17. I think Peter has already thrown some light on it. And Jesus here, you know, we've been very aware that this is the beauty of, of going on in sequence and teaching, isn't it? When, when you continue to work through a gospel or whatever, you can see it in context. And we're aware that certainly for the past two chapters, it's very much teaching in a way that provokes the Pharisees who are present. To, to realise who he is and to acknowledge who he is. But of course, their hearts, generally speaking, there could of course be there are a few Nicodemuses in there who will respond. Let's not forget that. You can never write people off 100% if they're Pharisees or not. <laughs> because life ain't like that. And the it tells us later on, through the Acts of the Apostles, that quite a number of the priests, priests did believe. They were just scared to make that belief known in case they got thrown out of the synagogue. Uh, but Jesus here, it's as if the Pharisees have gone all of a sudden and we're in a different occasion. And he's speaking merely to the disciples now. So this is a passage that's appropriate for all those who want to be disciples. Now, who wants to be a disciple? <laughs> or are we okay with just coming to church on Sunday mornings and filling a pew? Who wants to be a disciple? If we want to be a disciple, this applies to us. Let's read the passage. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to come to, to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? And after that, you can eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now that's strong stuff, isn't it, to be telling the disciples. And there were three little uh, snips there that stuck with me as I read the passage. The first one was in verse 3. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. The second was in verse 5. Increase our faith. That's what the disciples wanted. That's how they responded to, to Jesus' teaching. And the third was at the end in verse 10. When we've done all, we're unworthy servants. And it was those three things that just stuck with me through the passage. Watch yourself. Time and time again, Jesus reminds the disciples and those listening to him that they need to be very careful how they're living. He says, when he's been telling them about... um, signs of the end of the age in which we're living. He says, be careful or your heart will be weighed down with dissipation. I had to look that one up. I thought, well, yeah, it's not a word we often use it these days, dissipation. Now, can, any, can anybody define dissipation for me? <laughs> well, I, I looked it up, you see, cause I thought, well, but, but it means to scatter. It means to waste, you know, to waste time with futile amusements, if you like. That's dissipation. Um, It's so easy to do that, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is saying. You can easily be weighed down with trivial pursuit, if you like. Drunkenness, I didn't have any problem with that. I I understand what that is. But the anxieties of life. Every one of us here now has anxieties. I remember it it was quite an often quoted phrase a few years ago. I don't think it came from Richard Attenborough. But it was, it was this, he said, 
Everyone you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Therefore, be kind. A little classic little sentence, that. Because it's true. And even though we, we, as believers, we let each other into our lives more than non-believers would, but we don't, don't know everything about each other, do we? But it's knowing what to do with our anxieties, isn't it, as believers? It's not wrong to be anxious. But we take those anxieties to him and he can deal with them. He's got broader shoulders than we have. God's not anxious about anything. He's not stressed about anything. And we know that. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. My yoke's easy, my burden's light. Which is contrary to what Peter seems to be saying. Yeah, time for judgment to be getting out of God. And you've got Jesus saying on this side, my yoke's easy, my burden's light. What are we to believe? Both of them. <laughs> Both of them. Because the anxieties I have, I need to learn to put them to the cross. And let Jesus take them. And that's a process of learning. And it's not always easy. Everybody you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. So be kind. The anxieties of life, they can weigh us down. They can be a barrier between us and the Lord himself. So we refuse to lay them down. We'd rather be nervous than peaceful. That day will close on you unexpectedly, like a trap. It will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Nobody's exempt from this. Be always, be always on the watch. It's watchfulness. It's watchfulness. What the Lord's saying to the disciples in chapter 17. Be always on the watch. And pray. That you may be able to escape those things which will come upon the earth. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that there will come times in the church of Jesus when savage wolves get in amongst the flock. And he says you must be on your guard to be aware of that. You've got to be watching. And the Lord says back in our passage, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea, the person who causes offence, if he's not watching, if he's spiritually casual or deceived, if he's not watching, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck. It would be difficult to think of stronger language than this. It's not easy, is it? Always listening to what Jesus says. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea rather than cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. And, and so I, I say to the Lord, Lord, I desperately do not want to cause a, a little one to sin. As we would all say if we were musing on this passage, 
And I thought, how would, what would, what's the Lord got to say to me in respect of that? Just if you can, flip with me, if you can find it, to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. This comes, I'll tell you, these few little psalms from Psalm 120 to 134 are called the Psalms of Ascents, or the Psalms of Degrees. Beautiful little psalms, every one of them. And they actually tell a story of pilgrimage. I don't know if you're fairly familiar with them, or if you use you know, texts from them on a fairly frequent basis. You probably do, because we know them fairly well. But they actually tell of a pilgrimage. And that's what we're all on, isn't it? As we're working out our salvation. We're on a pilgrimage. The day that I came to know the Lord Jesus personally, my pilgrimage began. And I've been on pilgrimage, and so have you, ever since. And these psalms give you the steps of that pilgrimage. They're fantastic. The psalmist starts off when he's in the place he doesn't want to be. They speak the wrong language, they're living wrong lives, and he wants away from it. And each one of those psalms is a step on him going forward to, to the place where he wants to be. To Psalm 133, where he's in fellowship with other believers. You know, he's in unity with other believers. You know, we often quote from it, don't we? It's one of the best known psalms in the book. How good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell together in unity, and then they spend all night, 134, praising God. But it's taken him a long time to get there. It's taken him a process to get there. And tradition tells us, you know, once Solomon had built his temple, that there was the outer court here. But as you go up to the um, holy place, turn back to yourself, there were 15 steps going up. And what the Levites would do was sing one of those psalms, 15 of them, on every step, going up to the, most, to the holy place on the way into the tabernacle. It's a beautiful song. By the time the psalmist gets to 130, he's hit, he's hit a crisis. And we do, don't we, on our way through, as pilgrims, we're trying to follow God, we're doing our level best, we hit a crisis. And it takes us down into something of a pit. Anybody been there? This is why it's not easy to work out your salvation. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. You're not finding this easy. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. This guy's on pilgrimage. He's walking with God. He's trying to walk with God. He's trying to get to where God wants him to be. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Lord, if you kept a record of sins... Who could stand? That's beautiful. God doesn't keep a record of our sins. Therefore we can stand before him. Because he provides for our forgiveness. 
With you there is forgiveness. Therefore I fear you. And out of these depths that he finds himself in, comes the next step. Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I've stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child with my soul within me. He's become as a little child in the hand of God. And he knows only the hand of God can lead him forward to where he wants to be. Only the hand of God can take him forward on this pilgrimage that he's making. And he's become as a little child. Then this little child can pray for the whole nation. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Because now and forevermore. Because becoming that little child in the hand of God enables me to be mature in the things of God's Spirit. I can be a man. You know, again, you, you have a contradiction to hold together. I need to become as a little child in order to become a person of understanding. And you say, well, what's that got to do with Luke 17? And I'm hoping to tell you. Jesus said, it would be better for anybody who's going to be offence to any of these little ones for him to be thrown with a millstone around his neck into the sea. So I said, Lord, I don't want to be offensive to your little ones. He says, no, you're not going to be. Because I'm teaching you to be a little one. <laughs> and I found that quite an answer. I'm teaching you, I'm enabling you to be a little one. Because Jesus says in another, in another place, unless you become as a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of God. You know, it's essential to have this simple faith. He says, you've hidden these things. The things of God's power, the things of God's grace, the things of God's fatherly mercy. You've hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you've revealed them to little children. <laughs> so the way that I'm going to be able to live amongst the people of God in a way that he wants me to live without causing offence he's going to enable me to have a childlike faith in his every promise I found that very helpful I don't know if it helps you and that's the way I can watch myself by retaining that childlike faith which enables me to see the kingdom of God in action enables me to see the kingdom of God here this morning. It enables me to see the kingdom of God in you.
Whereas if I didn't have that simple faith, I'd miss it. So if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. And the disciples are finding this tough. There's one significant way, I think, in which the disciples who understood the Old Testament in, in some measure, don't forget they were Jews and that's how they grew up with, with the Old Te- what we call the Old Testament being the heart of their education. And of course we see the psalmist, his enemies to him were people he hated. You've read some of the psalms that we were you've done your theology studies, we call them the imprecatory psalms. Where David watches against his enemies. You know, I hate them, Lord, get rid of them. They hate you as well. Anybody who hated David hated God because David was God's man. (laughs) Even that beautiful psalm that we often quote, Psalm 139, when he's saying that the Lord knows me. He knows everything I speak. He knows at every place that I am. He knew me when I was in my mother's womb. But even when he's in that sort of meditative, contemplative appreciation of who God is, he can't resist having a go at his enemies. If only you would slay the wicked, O oh God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent, your adversaries misuse your name. In the Old Testament, there's hatred of the enemy who, who, who by definition hated God because he wasn't a member of the people of God if he wasn't one of the children of Israel. Hatred of the enemy was pretty much part of the course. And then Jesus stands up and says, love your enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use you. And he's saying something... He emphasized personal relationships in a way that it never fully came across or clearly came across in the Old Testament books. But Jesus gives you the emphasis. And he makes the love your neighbor as yourself second to loving God only in his summation of the two greatest commandments. If you want to find out where it says love your neighbor as yourself, because I've done it this week, you have to wade into Leviticus chapter 19 and then he says so amongst a whole load of other stuff. And Jesus said, this is next to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and spirit. That's the next most important thing you can do. Love your neighbour as yourself. And it was said almost along, incidentally, along with a whole load of other commandments, if you read through Leviticus, you could quite easily miss it. But you can't miss it with Jesus. And he's saying this about your brother, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times, which is like any number of times, seven represents in this sense, any number of times, and if he repented, forgive him. We know the importance of forgiveness. But the, the apostles say to him, Lord, we don't know quite if we can compete with this. Increase our faith. We need a bit more faith in you. We're not quite on your wavelength. 
you feel as if you're on one of Jesus' wavelengths very much? We've got a lot to learn, haven't we? And then he, he doesn't say, well, I'll pray for you. I'll give you a bit more faith. You don't lay hands on them, you know, and pray for them. Which you, you might think he would do the way we tend to do things these days. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. And it will obey you. He says something to them that is going to leave them nonplussed. Because they haven't shifted any mulberry trees. They've not moved any mountains. And he said that on another occasion in a similar passage. They've not done this. But what it really means is, as I was reading it, if we're seeking to be pilgrims, if we're seeking to move forward in God, if there's anything that stands in our way that prevents us from making that forward road as he would lead us, we can command it to be moved. We can command it to be moved. We're excited. I say excited, but it must have been a month ago now when we went to the celebration for Colin Urquhart's life. But being with him for that number of years, it was four years, I was roughly full time, and a year as a student, five years in all. But he understood spiritual authority. And he was not shy at using it and how he needs to be that application of spiritual authority today it's called the prophetic but we can't use the prophetic unless we've been in the presence of God and heard God expressing his heart to us otherwise it's nonsense But Colin understood that. And if I've learned that at all, he would have been one of my main teachers. And it was exciting to be there celebrating his life. And Clive said towards the end of the session, he said, you know, we're not talking about death here today. We're talking about resurrection. And I thought that was lovely. We're talking about resurrection. And I can just imagine Colin up there just smiling down Preach it, son. Preach it. <laughs> it's lovely. So he said, this is to do with moving. Perhaps a better expression would have been if the disciples were wanting to move on in their life of faith, and their walk of faith, would have been, Lord, teach us to use what faith we have. Not, Lord, suddenly increase our faith so that we can do all the things you want us to do so that we shift those mountains and tell the mulberry tree to be moved out of the way. But teach us to use what faith we have. It's key. Because we've all got faith. Otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here this morning. Is anybody sitting here without any faith? With no faith at all? No. We've all got measure of faith. I have. You have. I'm going to put it to the test.
because we need it in order to complete the, the pilgrimage. We won't do it without faith. When Jesus had told the disciples about the parable of the sower, remember that, some on the path, some on the stony ground, some on the thorny ground, some on the good soil. And the disciples say, why do you speak to the people like this? And again, Jesus never answered the questions, did he? He replied, he gave them to something to think about, you see, something to mull over, something to put in their hearts and dwell on. And you know, once the Holy Spirit got a hold of them, they remembered everything he said, including Luke chapter 17. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. It's been given to disciples. But not to them. That's to just those who are casually listening and not really allowing it to influence their lives. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. See, teach us to use the faith we have. Whoever has will be given more. It's using what you've been given. And you know, the last parable that Jesus took in Matthew's account that he ministered was to do with the parable of his talents. One man was given five talents, one man was given two, and another was given one. Remember that? The guy with five doubled his number. The Lord said, you've done well, great. The one with two doubled his number, he got two more. The Lord said, you've done well, that's great. The one with one didn't do anything with his. And the Lord said, that's disastrous. You failed in what I wanted you to do. And he makes that same point that he's just made to, to the disciples when he told them the parable of the sower. He used the same expression. Everyone who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So we must use what we've been given. Increase our faith. No, even if you've got the smallest bit of faith, use it. If anything's in your way, tell it to get out. In the power of the Spirit. And it'll shift. It'll shift. And then he goes on to tell them, doesn't he, about the servant. He's still, you okay? Like that he asked Boris Johnson, are you okay, Prime Minister? He's still okay here. <laughs> Prime Minister thought his talk went well. <laughs> it's hard to pray for people that make you laugh, isn't it? It really is. Boom, there's nothing long or wrong with laughter, though, is there? Suppose one of you had a servant ploughing while looking after the sheep. What do you say to the servants? Well, you, we've read it. But Jesus asked him, you know, go out and work all day in the field, come back, have a quick wash down, put your cummerbund on and your bow tie, and then you're going to serve me. This guy's just done a 16 hour day. And he's thinking, come on, I'm, I'm already not. No, I'm already very tired. <laughs> we are unworthy servants. And you think, Come on, I expect a bit of credit for this. 
I expected. You know, sometimes we, we think we can do God a favour. I was like that myself, you know. So I'm a 20, I'm living very wrongly. I won't bore you with the details. But I was also playing organ in church. I mean, I was a pro musician for a number of years. And, you know, I'd, I'd do weddings and funerals during the week, which all helped the income. Um, but I wasn't in the right place with God. But I thought that if I was doing my bit in church, the Lord would do his bit for me, because, you know, I was doing my bit. And it took him a while to show me that I was a totally unworthy servant. But he couldn't really care less whether I played organ in church or not. He doesn't want performers. He doesn't actually want performers. He wants servants. It took him a long time to show me that. But eventually he did. Because he's so patient, isn't he? <laughs> he's so patient and loving. And he's not going to let go of any of us. No matter if we're in the psalmist's pit, he ain't going to let go. He's going to teach us how to be a little child and then reveal the kingdom to us. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? <laughs> it's all here somehow. We are unworthy, sir. I just read it. This might be my last lesson. How are we doing? All right. Uh, I just read Luke chapter 7. Just, just turn up Luke chapter 7, if you would, please. Luke chapter 7. It's to do with the healing of the centurion's servant. And it says, this servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. This is uh, the beginning of chapter 7, verse 2. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Interesting, isn't it? This, this Roman, this centurion, didn't send a bunch of Romans to him. He sent Jews to him. I've never noticed that. He sent a bunch of Jews. I've noticed that before. Asking him to come and heal the servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. <laughs> if we could give to Jesus the worst reason for coming, that would be it. That this person actually deserves you to come. Because he's been a good lad, really. And he's done what you would want him to do. And he deserves to be healed. And we are, we're actually, friends, let's, let's face it, we often pray like this, don't we? We're going to pray for somebody for healing. We'll tell, our, tell God how good this person is. We do. I'm as bad as you. Before we get to the nub of the matter, where we're going to ask God to do something for this person. Look, grace is something we can't possibly deserve. If we could work for our salvation, we would. We would. By grace you've been saved through faith so that no one can boast. If we could boast about it, we would. But we can't. Because everything we receive from God, we don't deserve. 
We are unworthy servants. It's true, isn't it? And the, the, the Jews, this man deserves you. And then it's beautiful. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, he went with him. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve. <laughs> As Simon would say, this guy gets it. The centurion gets it. But you don't. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word. Say the word. And my servant will be healed. Beautiful. I myself am a man under authority. He says a little bit about how he uses that authority. When Jesus heard this verse 9, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Because he knew he didn't deserve it. And Jesus spoke the word that the centurion wanted to speak. The men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well he does all things well we're unworthy servants then you can relax I'm unworthy of this I can never work towards this it's great process I wish I'd learned this earlier I would have been much more relaxed in my Christian life Praise God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way you teach us. We thank you that you don't leave us, Lord, with the hard sayings of your word being unattainable for us. But you place your Holy Spirit within us who teaches us, who trains us, who equips us, who empowers us to move any obstacle, forgive any sin, and minister your healing to those who are diseased. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are indeed the coming King. You're our Saviour, our Baptizer our coming King, our Redeemer. And we give to you our worship this morning. And we pray, Lord, that as we enter this season of Advent, when we think of your coming in humility as a, as a babe, and yet in majesty as the King who reigns, we pray that we will honour you in every respect of our lives, that we will watch ourselves. As Luke quotes Jesus here, that we will use the faith that we have to move those obstacles that stand in our way 
and that we will know in every victory, every moment of joy, every triumph that you give us, Lord God, that we are unworthy. And the worthy one is Jesus. The worthy one who alone could open up the scroll and begin those final judgments. The worthy one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Holy Spirit, minister to us this morning. Fill us afresh, I pray. And teach us in everything that pertains to life and godliness and holiness and spiritual authority. In Jesus' name I ask.